0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Episode 19, Rebel Without a Clue, where we will be taking a look at Chapters 41 and 42 of The Name of the Wind through the Lens of Defiance.
1: So as this is Episode 19, we're assuming that you have heard this about 18 times before. But let me go ahead and explain for those of you who are new. On this podcast, every week, we will examine a section of the books, The Name of the Wind and eventually The Wise Man's Fear, through a chosen lens and figure out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take time at the end to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian from Nemos of the Week, and expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven from our own lives.
0: Now, just a couple disclaimers. The usual ones, if you're familiar, but if you're not, As always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, our discussions are naturally going to assume that you're familiar with The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear and the ancillary novellas and short stories associated with them. So naturally, spoilers ahead.
1: One last little bit of housekeeping. If you enjoy our content and you haven't yet rated us on your podcast app of choice, please do so. We'd love to hear from you.
0: And finally, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we are not going to stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. And now it is time for us to do our 45-second recap.
1: So on our normal recording day, I had a pretty shirty day, and we didn't record as normal. I also wasn't able to prepare as normal, So instead, I thought it would be fun if I asked Will to make me one of his rhyming couplets to recap this week.
0: Now, I promise I haven't engineered this to go over 45 seconds, so you should be able to do this in time.
1: Though if I can't, I still have to somehow acquire and eat something with raspberry in it.
0: On my next foraging expedition, that can be arranged. Now, Phoenix has not read this before, so...
1: This ought to be fun.
0: I'm looking forward to it. I've got 45 seconds on the clock, and you are clear to go in 3, 2, 1, go.
1: On the day of his lashing, Kvoth learns Willem's virtue, but the but Kvoth's instinct towards trashing leads him to mislead with things that are untrue. Willem buys Kvoth a null root, which numbs him to pain. So Quoth can get the boot without his strength seeming to wane. When Quoth visits the Physiker, Arwill sees through his mask, which is the real kicker because of Quoth's tragic past. Though Quoth's first instinct is to lie, he eventually comes clean and Mola stitches his side without being mean.
0: All right, 33.61 seconds.
1: Only a couple little (laughs) trip-ups.
0: Not so easy, is it? No. (laughs) But it's fun.
1: It is, but I also didn't go at a breakneck speed. (laughs) Good job. Thank you.
0: All right, so now it's time for us to talk about the theme that we chose, which was defiance. And... This is something that you actually found late in our planning stages on this.
1: To the point where we had to re-record the end of our last episode so that we would have the right lens for this week.
0: And I think that was the right call, because that really snapped things into focus, which is what a good lens should do, right? Absolutely. (laughs) So one thing I noticed is this is sort of a tale in two parts. We have... The first part where it's mostly quotes justification and crowning hero moment, and then we see the other shoe dropping in the next. Would you agree with that assessment?
1: Well, I see him as being willfully defiant when it comes to facing his punishment, feeling like he has to put up a brave face in front of people who would otherwise think less of him or that he THINKS would otherwise think less of him?
0: Yeah, because he's going for a superhuman reputation at this point. It's like he doesn't want to be known as a person, he wants to be known as a legend.
1: Here we see him become, quote, the bloodless.
0: And there's an element to it where his defiance is also rooted in a general mistrust of other people. He's afraid to show any kind of vulnerability whatsoever.
1: Well, considering that the reason he is being whipped is because of Hem, and Hem seems to be taking a sadistic glee in both succumbing to his punishment?
0: I'm talking specifically about how he treats Willem here, because Willem has only shown him kindness since they have met, and has been welcoming and friendly in situations where maybe he didn't need to, he wasn't obligated to. And here we see Willem giving both comfort in the lead-up to the punishment and procuring the null route for him.
1: We parted ways, and I fought down a wave of guilt. After knowing me less than three days, Will had gone out of his way to help me, and I had repaid him with lies.
0: And I'm also going to give Kvoth a little bit of grace here in that it helps to remember that he's still not even two weeks out of living on the streets. He's had a radical change in circumstance and environment, and a lot of those habits that he learned as survival mechanisms are things that die hard. So I'll give him a little bit of leeway there, but it doesn't make it right.
1: Once again, though, we see Kvoth's friends being better friends to him than he is to them. I agree. So just to rewind a little bit and keeping defiance as our lens. The beginning of the chapter almost feels like Patrick Rothfuss or Kvoth I'm not sure which, defiantly avoiding his anxiety for what's to come.
0: That makes sense.
1: There are sentences like, I strolled the university aimlessly. I wandered. I simply sat and enjoyed the weather." It does say he was too anxious to think of doing anything productive, which I think a lot of people are actually feeling right now. So this is being recorded at the beginning of April, 2020. I know a lot of my friends are feeling like they don't know what the future holds. With a lot of people out of work, and a lot of people that I am friends with being very creative, Everyone seems to think that they need to still be productive, but a lot of people are feeling anxious and anxiety is something that I deal with quite often. And I know a lot of people are feeling guilty for not being productive, for not using this as an opportunity to do things that they said that they always wanted to do, to learn how to play an instrument, to learn a new language, to do all those craft projects that have been sitting in drawers.
0: Even for those of us who are still working from home, there's a sense that a lot of people feel like they have to maintain peak productivity during that time.
1: And this happened to me when I and this happened to me when I quit my last job, which at this point was nearly three years ago. I felt like I had to continue being productive. And not because doing something would make me happy, but because doing something was necessary or right and I couldn't relax. That somehow taking time for myself, even though I had planned to take time for myself, that taking time for myself and not filling every second of the day was somehow not okay but it brings me back to a thing that you have told me many times and that I got to tell one of my friends yesterday. It is okay to not be okay.
0: The thing I get out of this is Quoth is telling himself a lie about his forced nonchalance in an effort to not only fool others, but fool himself into believing in his own invulnerability. And while I think that it's not the wisest thing, it also comes from a place that makes sense. It's relatable. I'm really fascinated by Willem in this case as well. Willem is in many ways the audience surrogate who is able to ask about a Turin customs so that the audience doesn't have to. And we also get a sense of his life as something of an outsider. And I think that gives us some insight into why he and Kvothe bond. They're two people who don't necessarily fit.
1: A lot of people feel like they don't fit. And a lot of people pretend like they do. And in so doing, may accidentally make others feel like they don't fit. Just something to think on.
0: I enjoyed their little discussion about idiomatic expressions. I've always been amused by how those come to be. They're always devilishly difficult for translation purposes.
1: The idea that Willem is grumbling about idioms in nature and and then Kvothe pulls out something that translates to don't put a spoon in your eye over
0: it. (laughs) Which is a nice little bit of diffusion there.
1: Shortly after Willem leaves... Quoth walks towards the pennant pole amid a sea of susurrus murmurings. Now, there's a lot of poetic language within the Kingkiller Chronicle and a lot of deliberate word choice. In The Wise Man's Fear, Kvoth earns a sword whose name is Sestra, or Sisura. Susurrus is not quite a homophone, but it's close.
0: And it carries that sort of whispering, murmuring, rumors of excitement to it.
1: It carries a sound of the wind.
0: And it brings to mind a phrase that I have heard. Words are wind. It would make sense that his sword has a name that is all about rumors and whispers and stories. And wind.
1: I don't want to focus too heavily on the whipping itself. Some of the language kind of bothers me just from a synesthesia problem that I have when it comes to touch synesthesia. Hearing or reading or anything about someone receiving an injury makes me not squeamish, but feel like my nerves are on fire. And so I have listened to this section four times now, and read it once, twice in the last two days. Uh-uh. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the specifics of the whipping. But I would state Quoth defiantly looks at the person who will be doing the whipping. Knowing that he is being watched and judged and weighed. Balanced, if you will, to bring it back to a conversation he had with Willem. And refuses to be tied to the pennant pole.
0: It's, again, that performative defiance to cement that superhuman reputation. It's not enough for him to say that I took my beating well. It's, I had to take it in a superhuman fashion.
1: Removing his shirt looks like an act of defiance, even though it's simply because he does not own more than two shirts refusing to be tied to the pole. He also, again, just came off of the streets. I can see why he would specifically state, you may not tie me unless I pass out. He's dealing with PTSD problems, even if he doesn't want to admit it, even if he doesn't really recognize it. And being confined versus willfully choosing to stand there and take his punishment. In one of those ways, he has power over it. In the other, he does not.
0: And this defiance also ends up causing him some problems when he goes to Arwill, the Physiker. The interesting thing is that while the rest of the audience seems to be awed by his performance, Arwill seems to see through it. The thing that impresses me about Arwill here is that he is neither impressed nor judgmental about the circumstances. He doesn't care about reputation. He doesn't care about whether it's foolish or wise. He cares about treating his patient and making sure that they're taken care of. And Arwill is a really fascinating character. I see in him sort of someone who is of the no bullshit sort and his true goal is to treat the patient and he's not afraid to call them on it but he doesn't judge them for it either.
1: In fact the only judgmental wording we see from him is when he sees Kvothe's scarf from when he stitched himself and he pronounces it as sloppy and there's mild distaste for the craftsmanship of the stitches
0: I read that as him thinking that Quoth was like any other student who might have had access to a physician to do the stitching for him but when Quoth points out that it was something he did for himself Arwell's demeanor changes dramatically
1: Quoth's pride shows up here he says in his head I thought I did a good job Arwell takes in The idea that Kvothe stitched himself and mulls it over and doesn't say things. And I think there's a wisdom in will being quiet for a second. Taking his time, thinking about how his words will affect others. I think we can all learn from taking your time and thinking through your responses. A lot of our communication right now is asynchronous, but a lot of things like Twitter or other conversations that may be happening through text, not only is it incredibly difficult to read tone, but it is also incredibly easy to snap back and respond without thinking. But because of the nature of text-based communication, you do not need to respond right away.
0: The instant message is kind of a misnomer. It doesn't need to be instant. Our will is a healer in all things. One of the things I think that's important about it is that in order to heal, you have to be vulnerable. This is the first time since Tarbien that we've actually seen Quoth be vulnerable with anyone. He hasn't been vulnerable with Denna. He hasn't been vulnerable with Will or Sim or any of the other masters this is the first time he's actually told someone the nature of his circumstances, like the specific background that has molded him. And I think part of that is because Arwill sees a couple things. One, he makes it clear that he's good at seeing through ruses and deceptions and is able to diagnose that Quoth had used Nalroot on his own without a confession.
1: He also, though, says that if he had been more on his game, he'd have noticed it earlier.
0: Arwil's ability to see through Quoth's bullshit ...is really what convinces Quoth to open up to him, because Arwil has already read him pretty well, and there's no point in trying to hide from him.
1: Arwil says you will explain all of this to me. If you lie to me now, neither I nor any of mine will stitch you. He means it when he says that he will not be lied to.
0: And Arwill is really interesting because he's created a truly community-minded service. And I think he's one of the few within the university system overall that exists and serves the wider community without expectation of immediate monetary compensation. So the thing that struck me about that particular arrangement, and I think it says something about the type of person that Arwill is, is that he is someone who cares deeply about his community. And the people who are serving in the Medica are people who are learning valuable skills from Arwill and the other members of the university just by working there and helping out. The Medica serves as a judgment-free zone where people can become better people.
1: I think this process will be excruciating for Kvothe. He even says, my last resort then,
0: the truth. It's like pulling teeth with that boy.
1: Do we think that he actually told the truth?
0: I think he told at least the parts that he felt were relevant.
1: I think maybe he told the truth as he saw it because that's when he confesses that he feels like he needs to be performatively stoic, performatively strong. He thinks that the best way to stay safe is to make your enemies think that you cannot be hurt. And he even recognizes that it sounds ugly to say.
0: I think it's something that he has believed... In his time in Tarbion, and as we've mentioned, he's only maybe a week out. That's not a lot of time, and he spent three years filled with punishment and cruelty, and those sorts of psychological scars leave a mark. This confession makes sense to me. It fits with the character's logic, what he would believe. And Arwell doesn't judge him for it.
1: Again, a long silence.
0: It seems to me that Arwill is thinking, this is the person I am tasked with healing, how can I best heal this person?
1: His response to Kvothe? Anyone who thinks that boys are innocent and sweet has never been a boy himself, or has forgotten it. And anyone who thinks that men aren't hurtful and cruel at times must not leave his house often and he has certainly never been a physiker.
0: He's seen the worst. Maybe not something quite like Tarbian, but he's seen stuff that would probably come close pretty easily.
1: Arwell strikes me as that type of person who you get the impression that he is a kind-hearted soul, but he also likes his little threats. Close your mouth or I'll have to put some vile tonic in it. He reminds me of some of my favorite teachers. The ones who, instead of just telling you you can't have your cell phone in the class, they look at you and say, if your cell phone rings, I'm answering it.
0: I would describe him as jovially grumpy.
1: One of my teachers goes by Mr. Cranky Pants. Yep.
0: I know which one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's the one that would have answered the cell phone.
0: It's kind of playful.
1: And he was one of my favorites.
0: Understandably so, he's delightful. He still is one of my favorites. I really love Arwill's willingness to just see and accept.
1: So at this time we are introduced to one of the few young women that are in the story that are recurring characters. We get introduced to Mola. She is a Rular which is the title that is next after having been an leer. She's a med student. And when she arrives, Arwill deftly stops his line of questioning towards Kvothe, and puts on an air of jovial, yay, you're here.
0: He seems to enjoy the back and forth with her and the lines of questioning and seeing what she can do. I think he is delighted in her prowess.
1: Like, genuine delight and happy that she is as adept as she is. He asks if she has already washed her hands. She said, yes. And he said, you wasted your time. You have to do it again because you've walked through this disgusting place that we call a Medica. <laughs>
0: Which is interesting because germ theory was a relatively late innovation in our society, so this is a way that Temerant is actually slightly ahead of the curve, technologically speaking.
1: Mola seems strangely taken by Kvothe's physical being, not in a sexual way, but in an admiring-his-skin-odd sort of way.
0: Yeah, I don't want to talk about special leather or anything like that.
1: (laughs) Well, that's gross. But anyway, Arwill asks, in a way that's very pointed and kind of defiant against Foth. what would you do if your patient said that they did not need any anesthetic?
0: And of course she says, well, I tell them they're being silly.
1: And if he insisted, and Mola says fine, but if he squirms, I'm tying him to the bed.
0: Which makes sense, because she's taking seriously medical ethics, wherein you can't administer something to a patient without informed consent.
1: Consent is key.
0: She may think it's foolish, but it's the patient's foolishness, and if she's provided the appropriate warnings, they're responsible for what happens next.
1: And she even verifies with quoth that that's what he wants. And he is defiantly not telling her why.
0: And his reasoning for not wanting some is valid because he's already had the null root and he doesn't want to have any adverse interactions.
1: Which means he is book smart, even as he's not really world smart.
0: There's a reason your doctor always asks if you've had anything. And it's a good idea to say, even if it's something that you think maybe you shouldn't say anything about.
1: It's also why your tattoo artist will ask if you've been drinking. You don't want to bleed all over the
0: table. And you don't want to put someone who's going to be caring for you in a position where they might feel responsible for causing additional pain that could have been avoided had they known.
1: Or additional side effects.
0: Which may vary.
1: Which may include death. Arwill has a steady stream of conversation going, which I think is a tactic to keep Kvothe's mind off of the fact that he's being stitched with no numbing agent. Or at least none that he didn't administer for himself hours ago.
0: think it's also serving a means of keeping Mola on task and seeing how she's doing. And training her to multitask. It's a multi-purpose activity for him.
1: After everything is said and done, Arwell asks both to join the Medica. As though he were thinking about it the whole time. Because he did ask if Quoth enjoyed doing that kind of work. So, not only is Quoth going to work with Kilvin in the fishery, but now he's also going to be a med student, engineering, and medicine. And he's probably also going to take on a few other things. This is where you get
0: burnout. And this is why you also talk to your professors when you approach burnout. <laughs>
1: But maybe also it would be nice if he had someone that he could work with to set his major.
0: An advisor, you mean?
1: (laughs) An advisor. That would be great. I mean, I was lucky enough that my advisor was the program director. But I was also lucky enough in that I researched the shirt out of things. And I knew what classes I wanted to take three years in advance.
0: And... To be fair, I think part of Quoth's defiance is not knowing when to say no to a task or obligation. All of these are things that he's taking on without thinking about what that actually means for his workload, but it's because he's afraid to appear in need of any assistance or at capacity for work.
1: He does have an insatiable curiosity, but he does not have a concept of The thing that I think Manette has, which is take your time, learn everything. He is learn everything. Now. I mean, he is 15.
0: And it's natural when you're in that stage exploring to want to really dive into everything. But it can lead to spreading yourself too thin.
1: Which eventually does happen to him.
0: And he gets some wise advice about it, because, surprise, surprise, he has people willing to act as advisors for him. If he would just ask.
1: Again, with Arwill just reminding me so much of some of my favorite teachers. And to wrap things up on the discussion. His eyes twinkled.
0: He legitimately sees something in Quoth. If Quoth were to apply himself in the Medica with his talents and his skills of observation, he could be a fantastic Physiker he would be very good in that role. And as we'll see, he'll be presented with a number of paths where he could really succeed. I don't know that any one of them is the right or the wrong path, but the trick is always finding out which path is his path.
1: Now, I do have a theory of sorts. I wonder if Foth's reputation precedes him at all if the masters were at all prepared for his arrival whether that be because Abanthe sent word about his protege or if there's some other grand meddling somewhat because of the way that Hem and Brandor had their conversation that the door closed on.
0: And also Master Lauren's seeming knowledge of Arladen
1: I think we can put a pin in that
0: Hopefully, Dorza's stone will reveal some of this.
1: But I think for now it's time to get to the Fronemos. I agree. And this time it is your turn.
0: There were a couple choices that I considered. First option was Willem, who displays some true friendship and empathy for Kvoth in a time when he desperately needs it. However, Willem is still kind of a person in progress. He's not yet quite ready to be a model on his own. Next option would be Mola, who displays some forthrightness and observational skill, and frankly, Quoth could learn from some of that. However, she's also a work in progress, so I have to say that for our model of practical wisdom, the person to look to is Arwill. I was really interested in his manner and his philosophy. We've seen a little bit of how he behaves and how his values work in the Council of Masters. Prior to this, we've only ever seen him in these meetings where Quoth is either auditioning or on trial. And in each of those instances, Arwill seemed to be a keen observer who combined that intelligence with a deep well of compassion which is crucial for someone who is the equivalent of a doctor in his society. A physiker, as they call them. He's a healer, first and foremost, and his approach is one that is built around empathy and also perception. He quickly perceives that Kvothe has unusual circumstances that he came from, and he doesn't judge him for this. He just simply accepts that as the way things are. And at the same time, he has compassion for that and is able to look past circumstance to see Kvothe as someone with a lot of potential. That speaks to a perceptive nature combined with a deeply caring soul. The other thing that I note about Arwill, and I think it also speaks to his portion of the university as a whole, is that it's very much community-minded. It is not something that is just there for the people who are wealthy enough to pay for it, like say the fishery, or just for students at the university, like the archives. It's something that provides a vital service by providing medical care for everyone within the community. Some are able to pay for it with coin, while others pay for service with additional service of their own, which helps grow the competencies that they learn in the Medica outside of that. So for instance, if someone from the streets were to come in with a knife wound, which from Arwell's description doesn't sound like an uncommon experience. Imre may not be as rough and tumble as the dock sides of Tarbian, but it's not without its share of violence and crime. And victims of said crimes show up in the Medica for help. So he's seen a fair amount of that. Now, said patients, if they can't pay for their services with money, are given the choice to help out with services around the Medica. And it's hard to believe that they wouldn't learn a thing or two about how to stitch up a wound or treat a cold. Things that would make them valuable in and of themselves to their communities. So once they've healed, they can then also help heal others. It creates a really virtuous cycle that I don't think any other element of the university truly does.
1: I'd agree with that, especially when it creates it regardless of class. We see later on that sigildry, which is the art that is taught in the fishery, we see that that goes to help the community in some ways. Things like sympathy lamps. We also have things like essentially refrigerators that are created by artificing and sigiltry, But once again, those are things that only people who can afford them can have. Everyone needs medical attention at some point. And I like that Arwill does not deny people that basic human right.
0: And I also like that he makes it not a work of magic, but a work of observation. So, for instance, when he asks Mola why she didn't bring sympathy wax and she responds, because I don't need it, he's recognizing that healing isn't magic. This isn't something that requires you to break your brain in two or three or four or whatever and play hide-and-seek with yourself. This isn't something that requires you to know mystical names. This is something that requires you to observe the people around you, find what is ailing them, and do the work to help them heal.
1: Learn how to heal them. Learn what herbs you can use, what processes you can use. And for the most part, that's not going to require anything otherworldly.
0: Exactly. So these are things that he can teach to anybody. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be gifted. You just have to have the desire to help and the ability to take the time to practice.
1: I think that that is a wonderful choice.
0: Thank you. Thought you might like that idea. Now it's time for us to take to heart the lessons of one of the other masters, in this case, Elodin, and learn something interesting about the world around us.
1: And it is my turn. So I will confess that this time around, because I had a weird time of it on Sunday, we've pushed our recording schedule into weird bits and pieces that, well, I picked out what the interesting fact is, Will did distill it for me, much like he helped me with the 45-second recap writing. So I'd like to say thank you for that and realize that this is a little bit of a cheat. So at some point, when you may have earned a cherry, this is your little bank of you didn't.
0: I will remember this.
1: Or you won't, and then somebody else on the internet will go, but didn't you say? (laughs) And that's perfectly fine. We encourage you to reach out and talk with us. So, much like the way that Will likes to introduce his interesting facts, this one has a name. It's all animalese to me. I will confess, the only Animal Crossing that I have played was Pocket Camp on a mobile device. But a lot of my friends... And I mean, a lot of my friends are playing Animal Crossing as we speak. Probably as we speak.
0: A lot of my friends have found that it is quite soothing in these unusual times.
1: So, do you ever wonder why some games use nonsensical sounds to stand in for spoken language?
0: Yes, I do. You're so cute. (laughs) You asked a question and I answered.
1: I asked a question you wrote for me. (laughs) Anyway, there's a few reasons for this. When video games were first a thing, there was not enough processing power to have somebody do a voiceover and have actual voice actors for a lot of these games. So instead, audio designers gave up on trying to make recognizable words out of beeps and boops, and they just created random strings of phonemes to mimic language. In many text dialogue heavy games, beeps and boops simulate the cadence of human speech, which makes it easier to read because it simulates listening. Beeps were common on many Nintendo games, for example Star Fox, Legend of Zelda, Animal Crossing, and they did not require extra localization for voiceovers. However, In Animal Crossing, at least the later ones, the beeps sound different in Japan than they do in English-speaking countries like the United States. So in a sense, the beeps have been localized. So why is this? Well, it turns out that the gibberish spoken in Animal Crossing, because it is meant to simulate the language that you are assuming you would hear on a daily basis, They're different because of what is known as prosody, which means the pattern of stress and intonation in the language, which extends beyond simple phonetic pronunciations and looks at the rhythms and pitches of the sentence. For example, if you hear neighbors speaking loudly through the wall, you can tell if they are speaking your native language based on the prosody of their speech even if you cannot actually understand words or sentences. So the prosody of Japanese spoken language and the prosody of English are different. This made it more difficult for English speaking people to follow along with the reading, even though that was localized when listening to the Japanese animalese than if it was an English translation animalese. As a result, the players identify animalese as speech that they recognize because it follows the pitches and rhythms that they are used to in their native language. Now, not everyone bothers to vocalize their gibberish language. For example, Simlish, which is the Sims language, is not localized based on the country in which the game is released, and it's probably due to money more than anything. And Nintendo tends to have a higher standard of excellence for a lot of these kinds of things.
0: Well, it would be a jerk move of me to say I wasn't interested considering I did all the work to help you get that going.
1: (laughs) And since you also looked at me and said, you know what, that's interesting, I want that one on the podcast.
0: Yep. So that is interesting. Thank you. Has been confirmed. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome.
1: Thank you very much for finding my interesting fact, interesting, I appreciate that.
0: You know that I'm interested by language, so.
1: Hmm, filing that away. Anyway, speaking of language, it is now time for picking out our seven words from the book, which is your turn. And then seven words from life, which is my turn.
0: So my seven words are, I don't plan on doing much bleeding. I thought that was a fun little bit of foreshadowing there. Quoth says this to Willem after Willem confesses that the sight of blood makes him nervous.
1: To be fair, I don't like watching people bleed either, but it's more about the act of them getting hurt. As I said earlier, I get kind of a phantom nerve pain from either descriptions of being hurt or watching people be hurt, but I can also understand how the sight or smell of blood might either be a little overwhelming or just disgusting to somebody who is used to blood being on the inside of a person and not on the outside.
0: It's also telling that Willem identifies Quoth as a friend, and he doesn't want to see his friend's blood, which, again, that's kind of touching in its own way.
1: This also leads to Quoth becoming Quoth the bloodless. The reason that Quoth doesn't do much bleeding when he is whipped is because of the procured gnaw root. It must be something like a coagulant.
0: That would make sense.
1: So give rise to one of the legends.
0: In the meantime, it is your turn to pick out seven words from life. So what do you have?
1: Admitting weakness is a sign of strength. As I said a couple of times already, my mental illnesses of anxiety and PTSD have kind of disrupted this week. We're recording this last half of this episode on a Friday night, which is past the time where I would have normally edited the episode and uploaded it and done a lot of the things that I do for Instagram and Twitter to help promote it. I reached out to a few friends and said, hey, I'm not doing okay. I had kind of a crappy Sunday and that put a tailspin in the rest of the week. But if I were just to stuff it down and be angry a little ball of upset, a couple ways that could happen. I could be very, very quiet and no one would even know that anything was going on with me, except for you. Or I could be like, if you poke me, I will rage. And neither of those are great. I don't like either of those reactions. And so a number of years back, I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't just stuff down when things are bothering me and pretend that everything is fine if I could actually have a conversation with someone instead and tell them exactly what was going on. Now, that doesn't always work, but if I have a what and a why, it usually helps me process things. And if I can explain why I'm having reactions to the person that is taking the brunt of them, usually you, It makes it less about the emotional seizure or the hurt that I am spewing outward from myself and more about this is what's going on. My brain doesn't like me right now. Anything that I say that might be hurtful was not intended but we should talk about it if it was hurtful. It's not a blanket excuse for being a hurtful person It's an explanation of why maybe I'm not reacting the way that I would be proud of.
0: And I always appreciate that. It helps me to contextualize and make sure that I'm continuing to be there for you. And with that, thank you for potting with me.
1: Thank you for potting with me.
0: And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapter 43 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of epistemic responsibility.
1: Be prepared for me not to be terribly happy with this chapter. (laughs) We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music.
0: And a huge thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring.
1: Audio production and editing, courtesy of me. Phoenix McCullough.
0: Project management and writing courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. You can also reach out and talk to us on Twitter at WaystonePod or follow all of my artistic endeavors to do with this podcast on Instagram, at waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the
0: roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding.
1: Stupid itchy nose. Why is my nose so itchy?
0: Because you've been told not to touch your face.
1: Well, as John Lovett pointed out, it's my own house. I'm allowed to touch my face in my house.
0: I'm fine with that rule because oh my god. (laughs)